Attention students, the Jabroni University Network is now in session. Please make your way to class. started recording? I can't tell yet. <laughs> I can't tell yet. After how many episodes? We still fuck around with our gear to figure out if we know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's very us. Uh-huh. Hey, welcome to Why yep. Do We Ever Meet? Hello. I'm one of your hosts, Wes, and I am joined as always. Not always. Not always. Uh, no, because like Drew said, you're big time in me. I ain't big time in you. <laughs> hey, man, if the, if the people want to talk to me, I got to talk to the people, man. <laughs> Uh, a couple ways you can support the show, rate and review and subscribe to the podcast wherever podcasts are available, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, etc., etc. But if you really want to know the best way to find out uh, where we are available for you, what's the website they want to visit, my love? Me? Yep. You're asking me? Yeah. Knock it off. You're, this, <laughs> this fucking gimmick of yours. <laughs> This gimmick where you don't know what the fuck you're doing is such bullshit. <laughs> they asked me last night, too. I know. And, yeah, and you, you you fucking... I'm not sure. You worked the gimmick on them, too, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Visit jabroniu.com, J-A-B-R-O-N-I-U.com. That's the home of Why Do We Ever Meet, as well as the home of several other wonderful podcasts like The Draft Pod, Biff Radio, Locals Barbershop, New Jabroni Pro Wrestling, Flow and Tell, and much more. JabroniU.com. And speaking of the draft pod, by the way, uh, Ashley was on this week's episode, which was hilarious. Um, (laughs) Was it good? Yes, it's very (laughs) funny. The boys uh, of the draft pod decided that they were going to do yoga led by their... Our our resident yogi, my wife, <laughs> my Ashley, wife. Uh, and it's very funny. And it sounds like the video will be up on YouTube so you can see uh, see the draft pod fellas suffer <laughs> through two hours of yoga with you. <laughs> That's intense shit, man. Oh, y- y- yeah. I yeah. mean, it wasn't, they were doing yoga poses mm-hmm. as they drafted. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so it wasn't like I was... Um, I didn't like put them through a flow or anything right. like that, which right. I think eventually we do need to do with all of you. I think I think the entire podcast network, everybody on the network, yeah. being led by you yes. and yoga is yeah. a very funny. I have one that that I can do with you mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. would work out perfectly. I'm more equipped than anybody else in sure. terms of like. Yeah. Like, because I've been around you for so many years doing yga and mm-hmm. having you test things on me. So mm-hmm. that's not, 
but yeah. it will be fun. Yes, um, I think so. Yes. So, uh, so I, we're doing an intro to this one now. This is an interview episode. So if you are here because of who this guest is, and there's a good chance that some of you are new to the show, uh, hello, welcome, welcome to Why Did We Ever Meet? We're glad you're you're listening. Hi. Um, this uh, this show normally I would the intro would just be introducing the guest, but this one did need some backstory. Uh, so we so I recorded this interview the same day we got our COVID vaccinations, which was what oh in March. It was in March, I believe. Holy shit! Yes. So um, so some backstory to that we we Ashley and I got our. Uh, Got our what's up? That's why I didn't participate with because, this one. Yes, you were going I, to sit in and, and be a part of this interview, and I felt like shit. Yes, because this is somebody that <laughs> you you know from being from us being together for so long, like you you sort of were indoctrinated to Texas is the reason, yeah, <laughs> because uh, because of me. Um, so uh, Ashley Ashley would have been on this episode with me, but. Uh, her vaccination, we got the one and done Johnson and Johnson mm-hmm. and pretty quickly in, it was fucking you up. Yeah. I was really tired mm-hmm. and I had a headache mm-hmm. uh, that night Yes, and I ended up falling asleep on the you couch. You, yeah. You were sleeping while I was recording. Yeah. 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 And it, and then there was also bad weather. <laughs> yes. Well that too. Yeah. Um, so, so what ends up happening is, um, I sit down and we, I start the interview with our guest, Norman Brannon, and, uh, we get the most fucked up inclement thunderstorm, windstorm that we'd had in quite some time. That was the worst one of the spring, I would say by a pretty substantial margin. Yeah, it was wind. And there was thunder and lightning and shit too. I remember thunder and lightning. But I was also dying, so. And I like I was very nervous to do this interview with him. Okay. And and he's a incredible. It's such a sweet human being, and yeah. I really did enjoy talking to him. Um, but I was very nervous because I, anybody that's listened to the show knows how important Texas is. The reason is to me that, that how important that band is. Mm-hmm. I've been on other podcasts. Specifically, just to talk about Texas is the reason. <laughs> I have been guests on other podcasts just to oh do my. that. So I was I was nervous about interviewing him, okay. and and uh, it's not to say I wasn't nervous yeah. about interviewing other people. No, and I remember I remember you saying that you were. Yes, I was nervous about him. I was also very nervous about Eric Davidson from the New Bomb Turks yes, you because were. there are no two bands that I more closely that you know aside from like Bob Mold, you know if I and if I interviewed Bob Mold, then I would just set myself on fire because it, it's over after that. What yes. else do I do? Yeah. So at any rate, um, I was pretty nervous. And, uh, so like, I don't, I don't usually, she's looking out the window. She's worried about the weather. Well, I know that, but she's going to break my moth, man. Uh, oh, no. um, no, not, mm, I can't get those anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, I was pretty nervous. I even like, I don't ever get, I don't ever get high before <laughs> I record. And I was like, I need to get a little high to take because I'm a little nervous. Um, and you're going to hear that I'm nervous when you listen, probably at the beginning. Um, but what ended up happening was, lo- sorry, long story short there, the weather fucked up the recording. Okay. Not on yeah. his end, on our end. It fucked the recording up horribly. And I, I, I was sick over it. Like yeah. heartbroken and sick over it. And so 
I ended up reaching out to Harmony Colangelo, one of one of the hosts of um, of this ends at prom, and also you know our what you know they're family. They're yeah. they're you know they're more than just our friends. Um, and I reached out to Harmony and said, "What would it cost for you? What what do I need to pay you yeah. to take a look at this I and try and fix it? And try and fix it." And she's like, you know, it depends on how much time it's going to take. And she was able to figure it out pretty quickly. And I, she did really subside my worries because she said, it's not as bad as you think. There are dropouts. And she fixed stuff that she could. About 30, 40 minutes in, there's going to be a little weird spot. And you there, you may hear a little little weird spots, nothing terrible. She She worked on it to fix it where audio dropped out because I had a shitty connection. But Harmony went oh, in and, okay. and did some work on it for us. and. And uh, and fixed it. Good. So good, good. Um, so thank you. Uh, th- this episode is coming out because Harmony made it work. Yeah. And I can't I can't tell you how much I appreciate her. I mean, I love her anyway. But mm-hmm. I, I, <laughs> I my my love now has a new layer of appreciation for <laughs> for her helping. And um, it just so happens that this is coming out when you hear this is the last day of June. Uh, it's the final day. It's the final day of, of Pride Month. Uh, we would encourage you to celebrate Pride and equality and inclusion every fucking day of the year because that's the human thing to do. Uh, but uh, the reason I bring that up is because while we do talk about music, um, Norman Brandon has, uh, you know, it also brings kind of talks to us from the vantage point of being a a queer person of color who's involved in the hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a rare distinction, especially if you consider the time frame, right? Yeah. So um, he has an incredible vantage point on that. And it was, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say eye-opening because, you know, I was alive then. I know, yeah, I know where, you know. I knew yeah. where society was in yeah. terms of like how inclusive it was and, and the, the struggle that people, I, I can only speak from my perspective yeah. of not being um, anybody of, you know, I'm, I'm a boring fucking straight dad. <laughs> I'll just say it as it is. Uh, but it, it was genuinely enlightening and, and really like I, I got not just, you know, talking to somebody who, whose music has impacted my life, but also talking to someone whose experience in life is far different than mine. Yeah. And, uh, it turned out it's an interview I'm really proud of. And Harmony said that this was her favorite. You know, she got to hear it before anybody else. <laughs> and she said that she's like, this is probably my favorite in conversation I've heard. Oh, so that was very nice. So, um, so again, if you are new to the show, hello. Uh, if you're skipping through the intro, understand that too. You don't know who the fuck we are. Um, but if you are new and, and you enjoy this interview with Norman Brandon, uh, go back and check out our interviews with Jeff Caudill uh, from Game Face, Jonah Matranga from Far and New End Original, who was one of Norman's bandmates in New End Original. Yeah. Um, uh, Steve Sanderson from Game Face and Airtype 11, Adam Marino from Airtype 11. We've had a lot of really cool guests on. Hell, we had Andre Gower from the Monster Squad. Yep. <laughs> so we've had a nice yeah. mix of people. And, uh, and hello, we hope you enjoy the show and, uh, and also, uh, to those of you who, uh, 
To those of you who are, are have been celebrating Pride Month, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you had a we hope you had a wonderful Pride Month, um, and uh, we hope this shit carries on through the rest of the year for you. <laughs> well, we don't get to celebrate ours until August. Right, right. So us locally, our Pride Parade isn't until August. So we hope you've all enjoyed Pride Month and and continue to fight for equality, fight for inclusion, be a decent human being. But that aside, we hope you guys enjoy the show and stick around. Please subscribe and uh, come visit us for more episodes. So uh, until next week, thank you. We love you. We appreciate you. And enjoy this interview with Norman Brandon. Bye. All right, uh, so our guest this week, uh, a lot of you who listen to the show will have uh, will be familiar with uh, with his name and his band's names because I bring them up often. Uh, he was a part of a seminal New York hardcore band, Shelter, as well as, in my opinion, the pinnacle of post-hardcore and the 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 true peak of Mount Rushmore of post-hardcore. Texas is the reason. Uh, in addition to that, he created an incredible zine called Antimatter that people still talk about today, including myself. Uh, I am pleased to welcome Norman Brandon to the show. Norman, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm into this Mount, Mount Rushmore talk this week. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, to just get right into it, like, that's honestly, for me, like, being, I, I mean, I'm, you've heard this a million times, but being a punk rock kid, hardcore kid, hearing Texas is the reason sort of, like, shifts everything a completely different direction for me. And I, I like that. I mean, I think there was a little bit of a, no, I'm saying like, I think there was actually a little bit of, of uh, premeditation with that. Yeah. I, I, I kind of talk about how I've been talking about antimatter a lot lately. And I've been okay. saying how, um, you know, one of the, the sort of tragedies of, of sort of antimatter or the book going out of print and sort of like leaving the cultural consciousness again. Yeah. Is that, you know, when I did the zine, I think there was a very conscious effort on my part to create a lot of different connections, like to, or to maybe not create the connections, but expose the connective tissue that exists between a variety of different punk born bands that don't sound anything alike. Yeah. And so, you know, it was, and, and then hopefully the idea was like that you know, the readers would eventually come to trust me enough to say, I will read this cause for alarm interview next to this shutter to think interview, and it will make entirely good sense. Yeah. And that was what, that was what I wanted. So when the band kind of came up, it almost felt like antimatter had already opened the window and allowed us to exist in a world of more traditional hardcore. Like, you know, our second show I th- no, it was our third show. Was with uh, it was Snapcase, Mouthpiece, Bloodlet, Ignite, Oh, Donuts, <laughs> and us. And it was like, you know, we were clearly, <laughs> you know, we were something on that show. Yeah. <laughs> people stood out. liked it. Yeah. <laughs> people liked it. We sold T-shirts. Everybody was like, "You guys were great." Yeah, I had no reason not to believe them. Yeah. and you know, and the fact is that as the band continued we were just sort of able to to build on that 
And I, I was so happy to kind of watch people who I think were pretty traditional in sort of their tastes of, of proper hardcore or even whatever proper hardcore was in the early 90s and being able to expand on that um, and sort of appreciate the different places that hardcore kids were taking their music. Yeah. I, you know, uh, you know, speaking of, you know, you kind of pulling all these different bands together and making it work. I was, I was talking to my brother the the other day and I told him I was going to have you on the show. And we started talking about the antimatter comp and how that's a good example of what you're saying of like, none of that shit should work together, but it, absolutely no. <laughs> works together. <laughs> well, I mean, it works to you and it works to me, but I've always said, like, I'd be very curious to see, to put that compilation on for someone who doesn't know anything about hardcore and have them try to figure out why do these bands exist together? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, there's no reason that Chamberlain and Snapcase should exist no. together. Yeah. <laughs> and, and even... Even like, even considering too, like a band like, like Game Face and Strife, like Mm -hmm. that, that feels like polar ends of the spectrum, but there is the the through line has always been there. And I think that's what, at least for our generation of guys that were into punk and hardcore and, and eventually the post-hardcore aspect of it. It, it felt the evolution to me, looking back on it now, everything still feels natural. It feels natural to me that I, I bought a Minor Threat record, and then I also liked Fugazi, and then I and then I eventually liked Quicksand, and then I heard Texas is there. Like, that does make sense to me. And but there's a reason. The, the reason that makes it makes sense to you, I think, is the reason why all of that makes sense to me, which is that there was a certain point in time. And for me, this was early. I, I sold all my records. Like I had a nice record collection. I sold my entire record collection in like 1990 for like $300 to like Venus records. Like they got so much good shit. I kept four seven inches. I kept New York city hardcore together, seven inch on yellow vinyl. Yeah. I kept the negative approach, seven inch, the cause for alarm, seven inch, and the abused loud and clear seven inch. And that was it. I sold everything else. And then eventually I sold those four to someone in Japan, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but I kept them at least the first time around. And, uh, and, and so what it was, what was going on in my brain at that point was that by 1990, I had already kind of gotten to, it was, but what do I love more than that? The people, yes. the community, the ideas, the yeah. ethics, the like, you know, all of the things that sort of like, to me is what makes hardcore hardcore. And that's why you could have that disparate collection of musical mm-hmm. sort of styles on one record. The thing that ultimately ties it together is the people, the community, the yes. ethos. And I think that before, I think there's an, there's one other aspect to it, which is a little bit more pragmatic, which is that this is pre-internet. Yeah. And there, yeah. there yeah. really weren't a lot of, there weren't a lot of people. Like mm-hmm. we didn't have enough people in the scene to start splitting shows up, 
you know, to like only emo show, only yeah. metalcore show, yeah. only, you know what I mean? Like, no, Get Up Kids had to play with Coalesce. Yes. It just, it, that was it. <laughs> they were in their town. Yes. Yes. That makes yeah. sense. That was, that was it. You know, we played with Madball. That was it. <laughs> we, we could, we didn't, we couldn't afford to just be splitting up the audience. Like, no, you know, no. That doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, and and I think that the other thing is that when you don't have the internet, you're also very localized. Not worried about what you're doing over in fucking Kenosha. I yeah. care less. Yeah. Like, and even if I wanted to know, how am I going to find out? I'll I'll report maximum rock and roll, I guess. But like, for the most part, you were sort of just like forced with what was in front of you, mm-hmm. and that was your local scene. Yeah, and most people didn't have a local scene that was big enough to bifurcate over and over and over it mentioning that too with as far as like you know you you're you're within this pocket or with your within your own scene where it, it's out of necessity that you're you have these bills that are you know mixed with bands um pre-internet we we don't think about it this way i think about it this way now like booking a tour like even that in the process of a tour that has to seem like for for what bands are doing now and how they're touring now, like what you guys were doing then has to feel like this insane, archaic way of doing things. Well, we were sort of like we existed on the cusp. You know, <laughs> I remember we sent out a little newsletter that was like, you can write us now at TexasITR at <laughs> <laughs> Um and, and also in that cusp was um, – the the bbs systems so like okay dot music dot hardcore right um was the big one that everyone was on and everyone talked shit on yeah and uh (laughs) and so we were just sort of starting to get that um Mm -hmm. but we were also sort of liminal in terms of our trajectory right i mean we were trying as hard as we could to sort of like stay in the hardcore scene or at least in the independent world. Um, you know, we, we started getting major label interest super early. So that's why we signed a two record deal with revelation thinking everyone would go away and they didn't, they just got crazier. Oh no. So (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So it was like, by the time, you know, we got to the place where we, where we broke up, I think that, you know, at that point, William Morris agency was booking us. It was like, okay, we were sort of in a different place. We just, I think we were just sort of understanding like the band's getting to a place right now where we keep getting bigger and we can still do our own shit. Like I remember um, the last tour we ever did with Promise Ring, William Morris booked it. And uh, I remember they wanted us to play First Avenue in Minneapolis and I was like, that's cool, but we're actually going to play our friend Fang's basement. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just remember him being like, dude, the guy's name is Fang and you're playing his basement. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> but I was, you know, we were just like, look, man, like we've got plenty of time to play First Avenue. We'll do that sometime. Yes. We just want to do this. This will be more fun. Yeah. And it was. The show was hilarious. It was Of course it was. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh everyone had a blast. It was like super snowstorm that night. Um okay. 
But so, you know, like I said, we were always trying to sort of like keep one foot in the ground. Yeah. Um, but I think that that was also sort of what was tearing us apart. Okay. There was so much, so much conflict, like in every single way, personal, professional, Yep. you know, it was leaning towards conflict musical. So it was, it was getting to a place where it was just not going to work. So. Sure. Sure. And it's, I, I feel like this is a, a loaded question, but like, because you don't in the moment, you don't know that like, you don't necessarily know like what I'm doing right now is super important. But at any point, did you guys ever go like, oh shit, this is like, <laughs> there's, this is happening. Definitely that. Okay. I mean, okay. there's, I think there's a moment in most bands careers or, or whatnot, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, when you notice people like us. Yeah. We're a thing, we're, we're a thing now. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and, um, I don't know exactly when that moment was. I want to say, I want to say that maybe that was on the Sensefield tour. Okay. Because we were opening for Sensefield. Yeah. And people were leaving after we played. And it was like, we were, we were like feeling like kind of shitty. Well, yeah. Um, obviously. Cause we also think Sensefield were fucking incredible. And at that yeah. point they were like, top of the game yes but the scene was also a little bit weird because sensefield had just signed to warner brothers and i think that there was still a sense of we hadn't gotten to the place in the scene yet where signing to a major label wasn't a big deal okay okay and i think that some kids just kind of saw us as like indie darlings and sensefield as major label people yeah. And I, yeah. I, that's all I can, cause, cause musically they were on top of their shit. They were amazing every yes. night, <laughs> <laughs> but I think like, but from, from that standpoint, that's the only thing that I can really gauge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because that was one of the reasons why we were so torn apart about signing in the first place too. We didn't know we're like, okay, we sign and then how many people will we lose? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also like that aspect too, the, the, the business aspect of it, that's, terrifying to a degree like yeah it's it's more of a like i think when you grow up in new york city you Mm. think about it differently like when when we were when we were like um sort of in the middle of the bidding war um i i don't remember exactly if this maybe it was this actually may have happened after right after we broke up there was a point where ian mckay and i had a conversation on the phone Mm. And I remember just sort of knee jerk assuming that he was going to like shit on me for signing to a major label. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, he did the most amazing thing. He was just like, dude, you live in New York city. I don't pay your rent. Yeah. You know, like you got to do what you got to do to survive. And if you you know, I don't want you to, I don't want you to stop playing music either. So it's your decision to make, you know? And it was like, really like, you know, and I think at the time we were talking about Shutter to Think too, because they lived in New York city at the time they were on Epic and, you know, it was like, yeah, it's true. Like our entire existence, like as a band was so mired in how we were going to pay our rent. Okay. And I think, you know, more so than other bands we were friends with, you know, we talked to, uh, 
promise ring or, or I remember asking Tim Kinsella, what do you pay for rent? He was like 200 bucks. I was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's no way you don't live in New York city for 200 bucks, not even in 1995. No. So, no. You know, we were kind of just trapped. And yeah. I do think that we made, we did make certain decisions based on whether or not we could pay rent that month. Sure. And, you know, and I think that the decision to sign to a major label ultimately came down to, you know, it was either that or, you know, we just had to have faith that we were going to keep getting bigger and bigger. Right. Which wasn't guaranteed. Nope. And we were already sort of like, at the end of our financial ropes, like we were dying. <laughs> we, need, we needed money. <laughs> and, 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 and that gamble is hard. I can't, I can't imagine. Cause you guys, you're in your twenties at this point. Right. And yeah. And early 20s. You, you're, you're, you know, those two things are, are pretty terrifying to, and, and you made a good point too. Cause you mentioned some guys that live in the Midwest where we, I live in Ohio and I, I know my mortgage is vastly different than somebody's mortgage right. in New York City by, by a wide margin. I, I can't fathom, and I don't know that anybody ever thinks in that in in those terms. Because until you said that, I didn't think in those terms of like, oh shit, of course, the living right. aspect is terrifying. And you know, and obviously there are people who are going to be like, we'll fucking move from New York then. But it's like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, this is where I grew up. This is, you know, you move from your fucking house. Like, you know, like it's, it's, I, this was what I knew. And yeah. if, yeah. I, if I was going to survive, it was going to be in New York, but there was a period of time where our band was literally financially surviving by going to major label offices, raiding their promo cabinets, and then going downtown and selling all the CDs to every shop downtown. <laughs> And literally that was how, and then we were eating by like calling up A&R guys being like, you want to take us out to dinner? And they would take us out. Like that was literally how we were surviving for quite a while. It was just, it was gnarly. And, you know, the other thing was that like, I, I left home when I was I, pretty much as soon as I turned 16, I moved yeah. out of my house and I never received another fucking dime from my family ever again. Wow. So that was that you know, I was going to live and die on whatever I made. I was going to sing for my supper. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was lucky that when the band started, I had antimatter and I yeah. figured out how to monetize antimatter yes. into a decent, I mean, it was a living. I don't know if it was a decent living, but it was a living. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was living, literally living. <laughs> Is so. with, with antimatter too, like, that it does that almost does does that come out of necessity too? Like, well, if I can figure out how to monetize this, this my entire is career is necessity. Beautiful, a hundred percent. No, I mean, so think about it. I so I left home when I was sixteen. Right. I had no no job experience. Yeah. Never worked a job in my life. Of course. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. I had to come up with something. So here's what I came up with. I said, I sort of know how to write. And I sort of know how to play guitar. <laughs> Those are my two talents. Um, I have to figure out how to get a job until I can figure out how to do something with those two talents. Right, right. And uh, I was lucky enough that, so there were three people 
that were working at this health food, health food store in the East Village called Prana Foods. Uh, so there was this guy, Jack Marshall, who was an old Albany hardcore kid. Mm-hmm. There was Chaka from Burn, okay. and there was Mark Mark from Super Touch. Okay. So the three of them worked at this shop, and I don't even remember how it came up yeah. that I was looking for work, but um, Mark basically said, yo, like, you should come here. I'll get you a job. Mm-hmm. Just start for, you know, some bullshit money. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was like 200 bucks a week or something. And then, um, he's like, Chalk is going to leave soon. And when you do, I can bump you up. When he does, I can bump you to manager and then you'll make decent money. And I was like, okay. So I did that. Sure enough, Chaka left soon. I became manager. I started making decent money. I stayed there for a couple of years. And then by that point I started antimatter and that was when, um, I sort of was able to figure that part out. And then somewhere in, in between all of that, there was also shelter, which existed for like, for me, it was almost a little over a year. It was like the end of 92 to like the beginning of 94. Yeah. But it was nonstop that entire time. Oh, insane touring, like crazy. Like I remember one time we were on the road for like four and a half months straight period like in america we didn't even it wasn't even just like it was just america it was stupid we played every single place you could imagine like i can't even it was insane but you know i i if i'm being frank like i'm not um i'm not an extrovert okay okay I, i don't like i had to learn how to perform Oh, like if you if you watch me in Shelter or 108 or Resurrection, yeah, yeah, or Fountainhead for that matter, like anything before Texas or even early Texas, I was, I just sort of stared at my shoes a lot, sure. yeah, <laughs> and I wasn't even conscious of it until I think like someone in Shelter, maybe Purcell, said something, and I started watching myself on video and then critiquing myself and trying to figure out well, what looks cool. Yeah. Well, what guitar player looks good? Cause then I started be- feeling guilty. Cause I was like, Oh, people were paying money to see me. Mm-hmm. Like I should do something. <laughs> I should put on a show. Right. <laughs> so, so eventually I sort of learned, but like, that's not, I'm not really like a performer and I'm not really like someone who wants you to pay massive attention to me. That, that, I, that's fascinating to me. Because I, I, you know, I view you in that performance aspect and, and like you're saying too, you left home at 16. Of course, one of the things you had to learn was performance in there. Well, you, right. You had to like, the only way you survive is if you put yourself out there. Right. If you become like a public facing sort of, if you're able to sell yourself, like that's kind of how you survive. Right. And I'm lucky that I was able to do that in mostly good terms because there are a lot of people who have to you know figure out more fucked up ways of selling themselves and i i definitely um you know but i struggled with it because it's not the first it's not in my it wasn't in my toolkit um when i when i left home it was something that i had to learn and figure out and um and ever it's what sucks though is that once you've started you're sort of like this is all I do now. Everything is a public facing role. And I'm just like exhausted every day. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and knowing too, that like, I mean, you didn't know at the time, but now 
like you are recognizable in that within that realm is somebody that was always was a performer like you know for people like myself you're a musician <laughs> and right i see you as as norman brandon the musician and there are very there are several other layers to you that are but there are also like i mean i think that that's true i think that's the truest version is yes i'm a musician but yeah. a performer is a different vibe yeah and i think that you know I like when people used to talk about like boy bands or like big pop artists and used to say, oh, they're so vacuous and meaningless and all these things for as long, like even back in the eighties, definitely in the nineties, I was always defending these artists because I was just like, these people work their asses off as performers. If they're not all singing like Jeff Buckley, I could care less. They're like, they're working. Yes. They're putting in the work yeah. and what they do is difficult and I can't do it. And, and so. there's also that, that element too, where like, I remember being like, I remember being, a, you know, in high school and like the, there were things that were, I felt like there were bands that you, you didn't talk about that you liked, you know, like I, you know, I felt like I loved our, I love REM. I wasn't talking about how much I loved REM. I loved, you know, I, I loved, uh, I loved Oasis and it wasn't a cool thing to like, and I'm, these are good fucking bands. Why can't I like a good band? What's wrong with good? Right. I mean, I've definitely been like pretty shameless in my, uh, in my love of, of like, I don't have guilty pleasures. I just like music. Hell yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's, you know, since the eighties, if, if there was shame ever, it was usually because it was, um, and this was definitely more of an eighties thing for me. Um, it was that certain bands and certain records sort of became tells for my sexuality. Oh, when I was in the closet. Okay. I didn't necessarily want to tell you how much I loved Madonna. Right. I didn't want to tell you that I loved Prince or, you know, I didn't want to tell you that even the Smiths to some extent, but like, at least they were new waves. So there was sort of like, okay, like, you know, I could, I could sort of talk about them, yeah. but that was the only time I think I've ever sort of like been in the closet about my musical taste yeah. was when it was, you know, guarding a bigger closet. Right. And I remember uh, similarly, Bob Mould mentions that in his book that like, there was almost, I, th- I think how he said, I've never book. read it. <laughs> you never read it. Oh, okay. No, <laughs> there's, a, there's a, he talks about, you know, like being on the road and, where there was almost like a don't ask, don't tell, uh, element of, of that, where it was like, Mm. you know, he said where, you know, would it be okay? They would probably say yes, but in all reality, he felt like there were safety aspects of it, or like you're saying, like might be too telling. And that, that's a, that's an interesting layer, even in the, at that time frame too, where it's still, I mean, fuck, we're still dealing with that now. We're still, I mean, right. I mean, well, in, in, in the eighties, I was probably, that was probably the time that I was the most like vehemently closeted. Like I'd say from like 19, I definitely knew I was gay early. Like, okay. um, I mean, as a child, a very young child, (laughs) um, but I struggled the most with sort of like um, accepting it between, you know, 1985 and let's say even 19, even as far as 1991, I think like really, mm-hmm. I was really just vehemently not, I don't want to say denying, but I was certainly like, 
a part of like the homophobic gang of skinheads in the eighties that I hung out with and like, yeah, you know, fuck queers and like all this, you know, it was definitely, um, that was a good cover. It felt like, Oh yeah, no one's going to think I'm a queer if I'm a crazy skinhead (laughs) and and cool. (laughs) Um, but you know, obviously also I was, I, you know, you can only change who you are so much. So I was still sort of this like, sensitive bookish kind sure. of thoughtful skinhead who occasionally carried a hammer in his flight jacket just in case. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, that I, I mean, th- that aspect too of your life, how hard, I mean, you're, you're ultimately like, it's, it's who you are is undercover and, uh, and, we think of punk rock as the scene that this, this thing that should be inclusive punk rock and hardcore specifically. And even in the mid to late nineties, I feel like there was still plenty, there was still plenty of that. That was like, there's a macho element. I have, I have a tough sort of, I have a tough relationship with that premise. Okay. And I always have because the hardcore scene, and, and again, like hardcore is regional, right? Or at least for a long time before the internet, it was very regional. Yeah. And every scene was different. And I'm not speaking for every scene that existed at this time. I can only speak for New York hardcore and sort of what I walked into. Sure. And what I walked into was the opposite of inclusive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like in every way. Like yeah. if you were just new you were probably going to get beat down and you're going to have your Doc Martin stolen. (laughs) If if no one stood up for you, that was what was going to happen. Right. Um, And so it wasn't inclusive on the sense of, you know, what you were saying in terms of the hyper masculinity, right. In the sense, you know, um, sort of able-bodied strength and, and, and sort of survival of the fittest of the mosh pit kind of vibe. So it wasn't inclusive on that level. Yeah. It certainly wasn't inclusive on a queer level. I, yeah. I, I mean, never. No, yeah. <laughs> I was not. Yeah. I was not going to be the guy to come out. No. Yeah. Um, and it certainly didn't feel very inclusive, you know, on a non-white level. You know, I I remember. Oh. Yeah. You know, like I tell this story a lot because I think this is still relevant. But I feel like, you know, I had that aha moment, you know, at a Youth of Today show once when they were playing break down the walls and I was just looking around and I was like, wow, every single motherfucker singing this song is white. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that's cool. But (laughs) what are we really doing to break down the walls? If non-white people aren't coming inside the wall. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And you know, and that's not to say that there weren't non-white people in New York hardcore. I mean to say that walked into a club you're going to three to five folks. Yeah. Uh, Latino, black, Asian. Yeah. But never felt like you were truly part of the fabric in my opinion. Okay. Um, And so that question of like, what is it about hardcore? And I think this question is still valid and I think still needs a moment of reckoning, Mm -hmm. which is, what is it about hardcore and the community mm-hmm. that isn't attractive um, in gross numbers to mm-hmm. people of color yeah, or to sexual minorities for that matter, like, um, or to women, 
<laughs> you know, like in these songs and we're writing these fanzine editorials and we're, we're doing all the right things, but inclusion, it's a way of being, it's not just lip service. It's not just have, you know, hiring a diversity board for your company. Yes. You feel welcome. You know, you're welcome. When I walk into a space and know I'm welcome, I come back to that space. Yes. Um, I think that there's, that's still something that the scene needs to sort of reckon with. Yeah. And, and to your point too, like, inclusion in and of itself is something that people in general are just really still struggling with. If I mean, we're this week, I mean, we're talking in a week when a horrible act of, of, of racial violence took place in Atlanta. I mean, right. it, it, there's no other, you can't address it any other way, but that. And I, the, you know, that phrase, like we've come far, but we have so far to go. Like how fucking long are we going to do that? <laughs> well, I mean, so the question, the answer to that question really is, is uh, it will continue until one, we're able to have real conversations about it. Yeah. And two, where the, def- where people's defensiveness goes down. Mm-hmm. Like, I promise you that I could have this conversation with a million hardcore kids who are going to fight me to the death about it and be like, no way, man, hardcore saved my life. Hardcore is, you know, my family, you're, you're dissing hardcore or like whatever it is. And it's like, no, I'm not like, this is actually my love of hardcore speaking. And, you know, I love it so much that I want to bring up the things that I see, the things I've experienced because they're real and other people see and experience them. And how can we fix it for everyone? If I'm your family, you want me to feel a hundred percent included. Absolutely. If I'm your family, then act like it. Yes. Don't get defensive. Don't get crazy. You know, like I'm not dissing anybody. No. I'm just saying, let's look at ourselves and let's, let's, let's talk about this. Let's figure it out because what, what we're doing isn't necessarily working at least. And again, oh. this is sort of like, you know, it, it varies from scene to scene. It varies from city to city. Mm-hmm. Obviously you go to a place like New York city where, you know, we're just a, an insanely diverse city to begin with. Right. The, the diversity that you see to show is going to be greater than one that you see you know, somewhere else, potentially. Yeah. Sarasota, Florida or something. (laughs) Like, you know, it's going to be different. And I get that. You can't just manufacture people at the same time. No. But I still think it's a valid question and a valid conversation. And I still think that no one is having it or has had it seriously. No. And and there's a, I, I I feel like um, in watching what happened in Atlanta this week, I feel like the thing I kept coming back to, my thoughts kept coming back to just that, the conversation and, and also accountability. Like why, why do we have such an issue with accountability? Why, why can we not just sit and go, no, this is fucked up. This was a racially motivated, horrible act of violence where several people died. Why can we not be accountable for these actions and do better? Where, like I there has to be a tipping point. Where is the tipping point? Which generation, which, it's always looking like this generation is going to do this. When, which one, which one's going to fucking fix this? Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. I get it. And, um, 
it's I feel like part of this scenario is just that it's really difficult to when potentially good people see themselves in bad things Mm -hmm. and don't want to sort of cop to that address it. Don't want to. Yeah. Like don't, or at least not even address it, but admit it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm still in a position where like, you know, like I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a gay person, but I'm also like a cis male. Like I can walk down the street in Brooklyn anywhere and not feel like an immediate threat because of my sexuality. Um, you know, although I remember one time I was wearing pink sneakers and someone called me a faggot (laughs) and you know, it actually does like what, what people don't understand is that word hurts a different way when you actually are a faggot. (laughs) (laughs) It hits a different way because immediately your, your sense of uh, safety is threatened. Oh, of course. Yeah. In in a way that I just don't think that it is when you're not, because when you're not, you could be like, I'm not gay, you know, Yeah, (laughs) but you know, I'm going to be like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, you know, but, but the point being is that like, I'm sure that I had been shitty at one point in my life um, towards non-cis queer people, you know, like uh, where, why why can't we just be normal? Why, you know, like uh, that sort of weird um, and there's still like a, um, a sort of class of, of gay men, especially, I think, who are very assimilationist. And, oh, okay. you know, over the years, I guess I've really gotten more punk about it, um, yeah. you know, because, you know, the assimilationism, I think a lot of that comes from sort of first stepping out of the closet and just not wanting to make a big stink. Yeah. And just, I want to be like everyone else and all my friends and I'm just like everyone else. And I love his love and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Okay. But then you get to the point where, you know, like I haven't been in the closet in a long fucking time and, <laughs> and I don't care anymore. Yeah. I'm different. I don't give a fuck how different I am or in what ways that I'm different. Yeah. Um, I don't care if, you know, you love someone or you're just fucking someone. I don't care if you're, you know, whatever it is. I, my feeling right now is like, you know, you can be queer in your own way, however you want Mm -hmm. and fuck everyone else. Like, you know, I'm being like really, um, cursy about it, but it's, (laughs) it's, it's, but it's true. I mean, it's sort of just how I, where I'm at. Like, I definitely feel like at this point in time, um, you know, who I am is really just only my business yes. and I'll be who I am, however I want to be. Right. Um, and if that means that I'm not an assimilationist, because that's the other point, assimilationism, um, sort of presumes the idea that we're all the same. Yeah. And in my, uh, not just opinion, but sort of experience and awakening of, of queerness and and sort of like what role that plays a part in my life, I realized that no, actually we're not the same on a very fundamental foundational level. You could never understand. And I'm assuming you're, you're, you're straight fully, but I'm saying like you could, you could never understand, um, you know, what it means to sort of one, um, understand this very foundational intrinsic part of yourself mm-hmm. as fundamentally bad 
or yeah. evil as uh, something that's meant to be ashamed of, mm-hmm. as something that's meant to be rid- ridden yourself of, mm-hmm. um, and then hold on to that for years and years and years yeah. and manage the way you speak, the way you move your hands, yeah. what you like, what records you're into. <laughs> like yeah. your, your, your brain is micromanaged million different things to keep from exposing that part of you that you believe is inherently fucked and wrong. It doesn't just go away. No, that's now a part of the fiber of your being looking at things. And that's not to say I'm better or worse. No, I'm not the same. No, <laughs> I, you make a good point. Um, I, we have a teenage son who, um, he even knowing he, there was no you know there was no change in how we saw him. We love him. He's our son. Uh, he, I, it's been a year year or so ago, year year or two ago. He he told us he was he was bisexual, and we said okay, <laughs> like, right? <laughs> yeah, you're a son. Um, but he also lives. In, in, he's in an inclusive home and he has, he has aunts that are gay and one of them is a trans person and he's been around inclusivity his entire life, but he lives in the Midwest and that's not an excuse. There's no, that's right. no fucking way. That's an excuse, but he's going to a school that's predominantly white. A lot of that mentality where like, you know, it's that they're all being raised the exact same way their parents were raised. They're going to church they're, you know, they don't, they don't stray too far off a path and he is his own person, but he, there, he knows that he's doing it with a risk. And so for us as parents, there's a struggle of (sighs) be yourself, you know? Yes. Like you go out there and be who the fuck you are, but there's also a fear for us too of like, I don't want somebody firing sure. them. I don't want to. I don't want to call from the school that there's been a fight because someone's come after him, and and those are those are fears that he goes to school with every day, and uh, uh, millions of other kids go to school with that fear every day, and it's in the hope it's in the hope that they get to where you're at one day. I think, right? <laughs> it's like right, yeah. We are Which only takes, it takes time. Yeah. But but that said, it's not like, you know, I walk around 100% fearless all the time. I'm still looking over my shoulder and just making sure that, you know, I know where I am. Yeah. Yeah. It depends. Oh, <laughs> you know, like it depends where you are. Yeah. And it depends who's around. It depends on how safe you feel. I think that, you know, part of being queer in our society now is being able to understand and calculate your own safety at any given moment. Um, And that's just part of the experience. There's nothing about that that goes away. I can be as fucking out and proud as I want to (laughs) be, but I know that someone somewhere is dying to put a bullet in my head for it. Yeah. Oh God. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a fact. So I, I just, yeah. you know, I yeah. live with that fact. And there are other things, again, that, you know, I think queer people of all ages, um, you know, essentially have to 
contend with, um, one of which I think is a shared generational trauma. And I very much consider, um, you know, I've talked about this a little bit because I'm I, at one point started writing a book that sort of revolves around this loose idea and never finished it, but I still liked you one at one point. But the idea is I very much consider queer people to be more of an ethnic status for me than even a sexual orientation. Okay. Because a sexual orientation is, to me, it's like, um, you know, it's a, it's a check mark in a box of who do I sleep with or who am I attracted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the experience that queer people share is so beyond that. Um, because, you know, if it's just about sex, then what does that mean for celibate queer people? Are they a part of nothing? Yeah. And that's not the case. Of course they are. Yeah. They all share in this. And, and so I very much feel attuned to sort of like my ancestors, you know what I mean? I feel very much attuned to the suffering that queer people have gone through around the world, um, over centuries. I feel very attuned to, um, and this being because this is part of my coming of age, but sort of experiencing the AIDS crisis, Mm -hmm. the hatred and sort of fear of, of that period of time in the eighties where, um, I mean, gay people were just fucking hated <laughs> for spreading this disease. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and the very first gay people I ever befriended was a gay couple. Uh, they were both French, actually. They lived in New York city and they both died of AIDS. I can't, think about sex without thinking about death. It's sort of a part of my psyche at this point, which again falls, folds into that. I'm not like everybody else. Yeah. The queer experience is very singular Mm -hmm. and it affects every fiber of my being. And, and on, on some levels, I've said this before on some levels, I think I identify more with my queerness than I do with, uh, my, uh, you know, Latino ethnicity or indigenous ethnicities, oh, um, okay. for different reasons, yeah. um, largely because I'm disconnected from my family who disowned me for being gay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a lot of different intersectional weird shit going on. Yeah. But you know, when I think about who I am, the queerness is at the forefront of it, how yeah. I view the world my experience as a gay man is at the forefront of that. Yeah. It's it's just sort of who it is. And and I and there is the with that in mind too. It it's an ins, inspire. I hate throwing. I hate using a word like inspirational because in, you know in the in the in the interest of not Tony Robbins sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like there is something, there is inspiration in that where, you know, a kid that is getting that emotional beat down every day, if it's a fan, if it's family, if it's, if it's school, like there is, there is an element of it where it's, <laughs> there's a light at that end, the end of that tunnel where you will find your community. And, right. and that, that light at the end of the tunnel, at the end of the tunnel might just be enough for, for. And, and, and I gotta say, you, you hope 
that you'll find your community. Right. Because, you know, one, one of the t- things I think about, like, remember when I was saying earlier about, like, you could have left New York, like, you know, because yeah. I couldn't afford to live here. Yeah. Well, I mean, people do that with queer people all the time. You could have left fucking Des Moines <laughs> right. or whatever. Right. Like, um, I don't feel like gay people should have to move to New York or San Francisco or Chicago or, mm-hmm. you know, just to be who they are. Yeah. And they should have the right to to live where they want to live and be where they want to be and be who they are. But, you know, we're still in a place where that's not possible for a lot of people. And I get it. Um, And so that search for, for that family. And again, like people always talk about chosen family and Mm -hmm. like, to me, hardcore is a chosen family, right? Like example, I love, I love my hardcore family. Like, love you guys. You're great. Um, but again, to me, when I meet another queer person, it's beyond, it's not chosen. It, to me, it's deep. It's, it's deep as blood. Yeah. That makes complete sense. <laughs> and using, <laughs> using hardcore is a good example too of, of uh, like the chosen family aspect a little bit of not only like, you know, not only like you'd said, you identify with your queerness more than your, your, uh, your Latino side, because, because that is a family that took you in. But even so, like it took, it took you probably, it took a long time to find that, like find a community, I guess. Yeah. Although, I mean, I think the more, the more you become yourself, yeah, your community finds you. Good point. Right. (laughs) Like it was really, yeah. I mean, because you surround yourself around people that want to be with you and that you want to be with. Yes. And, and part of that just means being who you are. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, for me, I'd say like my first real sort of, uh, real sort of awakening about that, um, was when I moved to Chicago. Um, so like after Texas broke up, it was like 1996 six-ish, beginning of 97, we broke up. And, uh, and so the, for the rest of 1997, I was in an absolute daze. I just, um, I didn't work. I just hung out in my apartment and, uh, slept a lot and drank a lot of coffee. And (laughs) occasionally I like, literally that was the lost year. I was depressed out of my mind. I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah. And, uh, and then I decided to move to Chicago uh, just sort of on a whim, partially because Tim Kinsella was like, the rent's cheap. And <laughs> I was like, great. So, um, you know, I got some money and I can make it last longer if I moved to Chicago. Yeah. So I moved to Chicago and, um, and just sort of coincidentally, I guess, uh, over the last year or so of Texas's existence, I started getting into, um, electronic music and house music. Okay. And Chicago is like house music ground zero. It's, the birthplace of house house music. So of course I was going to start going to clubs. Um, I started going to this record store called gramophone records and I was, um, I was buying tons of records and I was just like super getting into it. And I started DJing and it was like, it was this really exciting thing, which actually at that point I had not even connected to queerness. Like I was just into the music because I was, yeah, like it was, I, I looked at um, house music as an extension of punk in a lot of, of ways course. because yeah. it was, you know, it was a bunch of kids in their bedrooms 
using secondhand electronic instruments <laughs> and making some janky fucking records <laughs> and, and being like, who gives a fuck? It's ours. Yeah. You know, we're going to dance to this. And yeah. I loved that. I loved, and I also loved that they were using machines that were rejected by snooty rock people who were like, these don't sound like real drums, you know, like, <laughs> fuck that. Let's bring it. We'll take it to the pawn shop. And, uh, and then these kids were like 20 bucks word. Like, you know, <laughs> so it was, so it was interesting because I, I just got into the music and I liked that sort of punk DIY aspect of it. Yeah. And, and then, um, I met a hardcore kid who worked at gramophone and he got me a job at gramophone. So I started working at the record store and I remember that was like everything like that. Sure. That experience yeah. working at that store and sort of like, because that store is legendary. That store, yeah. all, all these famous, you know, DJ Sneak worked there and Derek Carter, all these super famous Chicago DJs. And they would still come in and like buy records and hang out. And so like, I, was, I felt like I was getting a real crash course history lesson in the culture. And that was when it just dawned on me. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so house music is basically made by people of color who are gay, <laughs> like me, <laughs> like this, my people invented this music, you know, <laughs> uh, like I remember Ralphie Rosario, another famous Chicago DJ, he also used to come down. So yeah. it was like, yeah, it was like lots of black and Hispanic, you know, people who basically were pioneering this music and, and yeah. making something out of nothing and, and just appreciating, like, this is what I was talking about when I was talking about my problem with hardcore in terms of inclusion yes was there was this there was this other moment and i've mentioned this before but this moment is so it's everything to me it was a moment where i was standing at gramophone i was in front of the cash register and i just looked around the room at everybody who worked there and all our friends and i was like asian man black trans woman white gay man older white gay man, like senior man, (laughs) straight girl, you know, straight guy, you know, like all, I mean, it was literally everything, white, black, Latino, straight, gay, trans. And we didn't even try. That was a normal day. (laughs) And I was, I looked around and I was like, this is the fucking promise of hardcore that never came to be. Yes. This is what I want. (laughs) We didn't, we didn't put a map. We and say welcome white black gay you know like you know we didn't need to do that yeah you know when you walk into a space where you feel welcome you know where you feel safe yes and we came we all came and we all showed up and we're all there and that was beautiful yes that's that's what i'm saying and if that can happen in house music world i don't see why it can't happen in punk music world yes except for the fact that we're not willing to do the work. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and the idea too, like, like you said, like it happened organically, it happened on its own because it was a place and a world where people felt included and part of it. And I think, I think that, yep. All that uses all, I mean, it's mind blowing. I blew my mind again. <laughs> I can't, well, like what you just listed off, like, that that idea, like, as much as I hate to say this, there's a there's a fucking studio executive that is trying to write that into a into a TV show. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. 
And well, it, that's what's funny, right? Like you see TV shows like that. Yeah. And often we're like, oh, it's so fucking contrived. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because I do feel like most subcultures or sort of like microcultures yeah. or places of employment or yeah. whatever it is, like we're not doing the work. Because if yeah. if we were really like if we did everything that our, you know, Instagram stories say we do. Yeah. Like our world would be amazing. Yeah. And yeah. we're not there. <laughs> we're not there. No. And, and it takes a deep, deep interrogation. Yeah. And, and a lot of listening, you know, that's the other thing that like, you know, in this moment right now, uh, you know, we're really talking about like holding up, uh, you know, different Asian voices yeah. and really trying to sort of like understand you know, the Asian American experience, which also has, you know, a fucking century at least of problematic behavior and oppression. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're still, we're still not at a place where we're able to admit it. There's still people who are making these weird arguments like Asian Americans earn a lot more money. They're just as privileged as anyone else. You know, and it's like, that's not true actually. Well, and it sort of reminded me of the, um, because people used to say that about like gay men too, like gay men aren't oppressed. They own everything. Yeah. <laughs> they own the entertainment industry. They own, you know, like, or whatever yeah. it is. And it's just, yeah. wow, that doesn't sound like a strange anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Right. No, not at all. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, but that even my slice of the pie. <laughs> <laughs> there, that's such a false equivalency too. Like, and it, it is so, it, it, it's so contrived and made up and it's, and it's, it's made up, in in an effort to avoid dealing with the fucking issue that this this centuries long oppression of of Asian Americans and how they're treated and how they've been I mean we we go over and over again like how minorities are are depicted in film and television and and art throughout history uh, especially like American art American film and television and a couple years, not even last year, we had a we had a, a president who was referring to a virus as the China virus or the right. you know like <laughs> the how Kung is flu. happening. You know how it's <laughs> fucking happening, right? There's not you know there's nothing you can really. I will say this about um, the last president who shall not be named. Um, <laughs> he's our Voldemort. <laughs> I, I will say this about him. Um, over my lifetime. So, you know, I'm sort of old enough to at least have been conscious for Carter yes. and, you know, definitely wide awake for Reagan <laughs> and then sort of well aware for Bush and Clinton and everything afterwards. And, um, all during my life, I've heard people say that, um, you know, that people follow a president's example, that the, what the president says matters mm-hmm. and that, um, that that this is just a really strong responsibility and tone. And, and all this time, I remember thinking, like, really downplaying that and just being like, I don't see how that because, you know, I would hear presidents and they would be mostly be just saying these like sort of milk toasty, you know. Uh, Hallmark card start type inspirational speeches and stuff. And I was like, well, who, what's that inspiring? You know? <laughs> um, and maybe the answer was really more just that what wasn't it inspiring? 
Right. Because now I understand when you have that largest bully pulpit in the country and you say the shit that you say, um, I understand where that goes now in a very yeah. visceral way. Yeah. And I'll never take that for granted again. I'll never, you know, I'll fight like anything I need to fight to make sure that no one like that ever has access to that bullhorn again. Yeah. Um, because it has literally created just chaos and division and hatred in a, in a scale that, you know, at least Ronald Reagan rinked about it or winked about it, you know, <laughs> like, right, right, right. I'm not saying Reagan was great uh, by any stretch. No. I mean, he stood by and let, you know, gay people die for many years without doing anything. And was perfectly fine with that. Yep. He absolutely had racist policies um, and sort of mishandled the crack ep epidemic because it wasn't affecting his friends mm -hmm. and people like him. Yeah. Um, we, you know, all those things are true, but he wasn't out saying crazy shit either. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So he was doing all that and saying crazy shit. I don't even know, <laughs> you know, what that would have been like, because it was bad enough as it was. It And the fact that we had, for four years, we had a president that said the quiet part loudly is, that is enough for me to be like, weren't you fucking embarrassed enough? Like, didn't this bother you enough <laughs> to go, you know, guys, we fucked around. Let's not do that anymore. No, it's still. But that's the thing. And, and I think it's important not to let people off the hook. And yes. yeah, you know, I think I think that there are a lot of people who support of that president who shall not be named. Yeah. Um, you know, in my mind, I'm sorry, but like there's nothing about that four years that was remotely close to normal, yep. sane, no. humane. Um, I mean, literally everything that came that came out of his mouth was awful. Yes. And I mean, he could never even muster up the simplest amount of sympathy or empathy or or care or like I never saw him once. You know, I mean, God, good Lord. I mean, a half a million people died and he never said, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah. How hard is that? Nope. <laughs> no. I mean, how hard is that? That's the simplest speech yep. anyone could have written and given to him to just read off the teleprompter. But he wouldn't do it. There was something that was very innately unhuman about oh, that whole yes, yes. situation. And I guess what I'm feeling right now is that I don't believe you if you tell me you didn't see it. I right. don't believe you right. if you're telling me, oh, but what about the good things? Yeah. <laughs> because the bad things were so bad that... You know, I don't know what type of person you are yeah. to allow those things to happen and feel good about it No, at the end of the day. I com obviously completely agree. And the fact that, like, I don't want to hear about your fucking stock portfolio and how great it is. And and talking about <laughs> after, after half a million people died, he was still talking about his economy. No one gives a shit right. about your economy when they're on a fucking ventilator in a hospital. Right. I like or that. unemployed and right. struggling yes. and you can't get money out to help. Like it's just, it's yeah.
I mean, literally, if if it had been an episode of Black Mirror, I would have been oh, like, wow, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that's nuts. Glad it was fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, it was real. It happens. We're all sort of, I think between that and the pandemic, yes. I'm really interested to see what the next wave of humanity is like, because we're, I think that there is not a person in this country who is not coming out of this with some form of PTSD. Oh, it's for, for certain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I already, you know, it was interesting. Like, so ever since he got banned from Twitter and, you know, banned from the internet, basically, (laughs) um, I haven't, I haven't heard him speak. Right. Like I haven't heard anything he said since Biden took office and, you know, there was a sense of calm about it where I was like, wow, this is nice. Yeah. And then um, two days ago or something, I was reading an essay by Roxane Gay. Maybe it was yesterday even. I was reading an essay she wrote uh, about the violence in Atlanta. Yeah. And she quoted a, it was like a, I guess it was like a press release that the president who shall be named wrote or wrote. Yeah. Scare quotes. Uh, You know, basically saying that um, talking about the China virus named it again. And uh, and then also like, you know, just saying like basically give me credit. Um, Yeah. Like he was looking looking for credit for the vaccine rollout. Yes. Yes. And uh, speaking of. Yeah. Yeah. But as I'm reading it, I'm getting triggered. I'm feeling all sorts of awful things in my body. Yeah. Like all these things that I had not felt. Yep. In a while <laughs> came roaring back. And I just was like, wow, yeah. that's PTSD. And I know because I have it for other trauma. <laughs> sure. yeah. So I know what it feels like. Yeah. And this, that was classic PTSD. It was a classic sort of like, almost like, um, it was almost like a minor panic attack. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I can't even read what he says. I can't look at him anymore. It's just a real, it's a visceral reaction that I have. So, um, yes, I I feel myself. um, I I was watching, I watched a clip on something uh, from the Young Turks the other day. And there was a clip from one of his speeches because it was, you know, pointing out like, hey, here's what dummy did. And, you know, here, cause and effect. (laughs) Same thing. I heard his voice and I could, you know, your blood's boiling. You're like, fucking, I hate that. (laughs) I could literally just hear him recite the alphabet and I would be like yes. triggered. <laughs> seeing that, seeing when they put the press release thing, the one you're talking about on TV or on online, and he's got that fake former presidential seal. Like, what right. are you fucking doing? <laughs> Who are you? It, yeah. It, it's I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's layers and layers of, of awful. Oh. But that said... I mean, there's that, and that exists. Yeah. But the PTSD from the pandemic, yeah. I'm really interested about because that is be really interesting. Yes. I I really don't know. I'm already kind of weird around people. I really don't know, like, it. How much weirder can I get? It's gonna get. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. Did, did you, uh, are you guys vaccinated? Did you get vaccinated yet? I got my first shot. Last okay. Week. Okay. We, um, um, and you're scheduled for your second one, obviously. Yeah. yeah no, but I'm like, I mean, even then, honestly, 
it sort of feels like, um, like, I don't know, like, I, I just, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know. There's no discreet ending. There's not going to be a day where we, where, you know, Biden unrolls mission accomplished sign and it's the day the pandemic ended. No, we're not going to get that. No, no, no. And, and I think that that's the part that sort of like makes me feel like, again, am I going to be carrying around this fear like for how this fear of people, of, of intimacy, of yeah. closeness, yes. um, is that going to be carrying uh, something that I carry around for how long? Yeah. I mean, like I just literally told you uh, about the the sort of trauma that I carry from the AIDS crisis and coming of age right. at that time and, and, and sort of how that still affects me and still yeah. is something that is present in my brain. Like, this was an entire year of sitting at home and thinking about death. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't see how I get out of this in one piece. I'm no, trying. No, no. I, we, my wife and I got our vaccines today. We got the, the Johnson and Johnson one. Oh, okay, cool. And it was one a shot. Yes. Yeah. And it, it was a, we're vaccinated and it's like, well, yeah, cool. Right. We're vaccinated. My folks are vaccinated, her brother and sister-in-law. And it's like, Oh, okay. This is cool. I don't know what to do with that. What do we do with ourselves? <laughs> well, I mean, the other aspect of that too, is that you are vaccinated, but that doesn't mean the person next to you is. Yes. And yes. so I, you know, I don't fully understand yeah. any of it. And I, I really don't like, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day about live shows. Yeah. And I was saying like, I really, you know, God bless these people who are booking shows for, you know, whenever they're booking it. I don't know when I'm ready to be in an enclosed space with hundreds, if not thousands of people. Yeah. And, you know, one of the last things I did before lockdown I was in London for two weeks before lockdown. I came home literally the day before everything shut down in New York. And the week before that, I, uh, so the guy who used to tour manage Texas is the reason, um, was on tour with that pop star Halsey. Yeah. And so she was playing at O2 arena in London while I was out there. And he was like, come out, hang out. Yeah. Cool. So I went to the show and this was sort of still in that gray area period where like some people were wearing masks and some people weren't, yeah. but you know, I'm at O2 arena. I don't know how many thousands of people were in this room, Yeah, but I maybe counted four masks. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so people weren't having it. Yeah. And sure enough, like after the show, I was hanging out with, um, so it was Justin who was the our tour manager. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this other guy who worked at Live Nation that sort of was hanging out with us, and then I think it was the guy who played keys for Halsey. Okay, and we spent like you know the entire like till the middle of the night, kind of just hanging out, drinking, like just talking in yeah. each other's face, you know, <laughs> spittling. <laughs> and, <laughs> 
And, uh, and so I get home a week later and as soon as I get home, and so we all follow each other on Instagram after that. <laughs> and, and as soon as I get home, uh, the live nation guy posts a story like, so I'm sick and I, I got a COVID test <laughs> and I'm wait. And this was back when COVID tests took like four days or something. To yeah, get results. yeah. Yeah. Yep. So like literally every day he'd be like, I'm waiting. Like, you know, he was so freaking out. And then yeah. sure enough, like, and I'm freaking out. Cause I'm like, does he, he have, have it? it? <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, he had it. Of course. And, uh, and then, so he had it. Then I found out that the, the keyboard player had it. And then I was like, wait, did Justin have it? And I remember I was texting with Justin and I, I said something like, and he was like, no, no, I feel great. He's like, there was a point where I lost my sense of smell. Um, <laughs> and this was before, this was literally two days before the sense of smell thing was all over the news. <laughs> so then as soon as like two days later, I was like that fucking bastard. <laughs> so, I'm, I, I feel fairly confident that I had it. And oh, I was like, yeah. yeah, there's no did. way that I was in that room. <laughs> <laughs> and my immune system just, you know, was like, nope. Um, so I, you know, there was, there's a, there's a sense that I've, of false safety that I've had since yeah. then. Cause I, you yeah. know, it's like, I know that that doesn't make me immune per se. No, I know you can be infected more than once. Yeah. Um, but it sort of like did make me feel a little bit, um, it actually made me feel less safe because I felt like, well, those odds are bad. Cause if I get it again, I'm going down. Mm. And it's sort of like when I, uh, got hit by a tow truck. I remember like I was super reckless for the next five years because <laughs> I was just like, dude, I got hit by a tow truck. What are the chances something like that's going to happen again? <laughs> Basically <happen>. indestructible. <laughs> that's how I felt. I felt like I fought a tow truck and I won. Yeah. Yeah. How can you not? <laughs> I mean, sort of. Yeah. I was in the hospital for two months. If that counts as winning. Well, that, that kind of, yeah. <laughs> we, I, I was pretty, pretty knocked up Harley. Right. But, uh, my my wife, we've kind of figured back. I think it was in January of last year, because something popped up on her Instagram, her Instagram story memory thing. Because our son showed her, like, no, you can look back on these, and she starts looking at her Instagram story, and this sickness that she couldn't shake, and going mm. through all these symptoms, and we were like, oh fuck, you had <laughs> before we knew what it was, and like, I mean, but if she did, you did. Uh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I say. I mean, I say that to my partner. I'm just like, I'm you know, sure, I'm if sure. I had it, you had it for sure. <laughs> it was living in this house. <laughs> yeah. So we, it's, we, took, we, I took my, I, my son literally like the weekend before the whole thing shut down. I took him to a, a punk rock, his first punk show. And then I ended up interviewing the singer of the, that band here about a month ago and he said, like, he at, when he got back to New York after all of that, he was doing the math of like, oh, fuck. Like, I was I did this and this and I was interacting with this person and that person. And like, we all sat and did this weird, insane conspiracy theory, like, you know, Twin Peaks shit, figuring out like, <laughs> right, like that guy and this person. It, it, it's made our brains like this last year has made us all somewhat crazy. Like we, like our crazy levels all bumped up like three notches. 
I would, but at the same time, so there was, there was a level of that where I felt like that first period of time from like mid-March to let's say summer, mm. I remember describing New York as quiet, but suspicious because it felt oh. like everyone was just looking at each other. Like, do you got it? Like, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it was sort of, you know, it was dead because a lot of people left town and a lot of people just stayed home. But, you know, you still had to go grocery shopping. You still had to, like, figure stuff out. So, yeah. you know, you'd leave the house and people would just, like, I mean, literally, we took six feet very literal. Like, we were just like, you're not getting near me. Get away from me. Everybody looked at you cross-eyed. Yeah. It was very uncomfortable. I remember, like, coming home from grocery shopping every time and just feeling yeah. feeling like, shit. <laughs> just being like, man, everyone hates me in the city. Yeah. But it was it was weird. And then... I feel like something changed. I feel like the vibe, at least here, became almost um, insanely kind and helpful and empathetic. Like, all of a sudden, I felt like we were all, like, on the same team. And everyone was just sort of, like, you know, trying to be safe. And we were all trying to help each other be safe. And it was... There was a real, I mean, I still feel that now. I think there's a real sense of that, um, you know, around the city. Everybody is really trying to be safe. And, and we're relating to each other in ways that, honestly, I would love to see continue in some way. Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it will. <laughs> um, I, I mean, every, <laughs> well, possible? I was going to say every, everyone in New York was also very nice to each other after 9-11. Uh, for many months and yes. then that eventually you know went back to normal but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the big thing i think that i got from this was you figured out like some people got exposed you get people get exposed you know you you see them in a different light after they how they react to certain things because i saw people that i knew i've known for years have this really crazy reaction to covid and the and the pandemic and the lockdown and the quarantines and, and seeing a different side of them in in a negative way where they like, I watched them lose their humanity. Like they were just, you know, just puffing up their chests and it's a hoax and it's this and that, and, you know, spouting off like people are fucking dying. Like, what do you, who are you? What happened to you? And it's that, that stuff's sad. I mean, it's such a bummer. Such a bummer. I don't know how to, to reconcile the sort of epistemology of the modern age. Yeah. It's so I, I used to teach um, at Brooklyn college and one of the courses I used to teach was freshman composition, but freshman composition in my class anyway. Yeah. And I think throughout Brooklyn college, it was generally accepted that this should be what this class was. Okay. It was essentially critical thinking one-on-one. <clears throat> okay. Um, it was not only writing, because what I would always say is, look, um, you could be the most eloquent white writer in the world, but if you have nothing to say, it sucks. Yeah. And if you have nothing to say, it's because you are not taking in enough information. You're not processing. You're not thinking. You're not sort of trying to work with ideas and or facts and, and create something new out of it, because that's essentially what writing is. Yeah. And... It was always a struggle. And this was, you know, I haven't taught that class in, 
I guess four years, I think I stopped teaching. Um, but so it was like five years. So nine years ago, I'd started teaching. And at that point, you know, the internet was, you know, the internet was, it was here. Yeah. Um, but we, and, but I mean, I think the most you had to worry about was like Breitbart. It wasn't, we, oh, we yeah. hadn't gotten to, we hadn't gotten to fake news yet. We hadn't gotten to like, um, you know, Russian bot farms and like, you know, all that stuff. So, but even back then, pre-bot farm, pre, um, you know, mass disinformation campaigns, <laughs> um, you know, kids still struggled with figuring out what was credible and what was not credible information. I believe that. And they struggled with uh, not understanding how to be able to read biases, Um, whether those were liberal biases or conservative biases. Right. Like it's, it's, it's the same thing. Um, And I always remember I had this one student that he was a young Latino kid. He reminded me of me and uh, it was actually kind of interesting because he wrote this paper. So it was an argumentative paper. And I remember getting home and I was reading, these were drafts and I'm going through his draft and I'm just, my mouth is on the floor because this is like, uh, it, <laughs> it is, it is a complete anti-immigration screed. Oh, and he's using almost a hundred percent of his source work material is from the Heritage Foundation, uh, you know, who are like a major conservative think tank, uh, very obviously skewed uh, against immigration. Yes. Um, for political reasons. And so I went and I actually like, you know, I went to the original sources and I was able to sort of pull the data and pull their interpretations and show him how they were, you know, biased. But, yeah, you know, it was interesting because I, I said to him, I was like, the whole point of this class is that I wanted you to do research to process the research, to think about the research, and then to come up with an argument based on your findings. Yeah. And what I'm feeling you did here is that you decided that you were anti-immigration and you were going to write this anti-immigration paper. And then you just went on the internet to try to find anyone who would agree with you. And lo and behold, the heritage foundation were there to help. Right. Right. And you know, that was true. And then I also, but then I also said to him and I was like, and let me guess, your dad is an immigrant. And he was like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, and your, your dad doesn't like other immigrants, does he? And he was like, no. <laughs> and I was like, because he's a real American, right? <laughs> and I'm like laughing because that's my dad. <laughs> oh, God. My, my dad was, you know, he, got, he became an American citizen and then was super anti-immigration. All of a sudden, everyone else was just robbing the country. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, my God, man, what the hell? Who are you? So, And my dad was like a Reaganite. He was like super Republican. And like, um, you know, I know a lot of second generation kids like myself who whose parents were immigrants who also, you know, they wound up in that direction as well because they, you know, they came to America to be Americans. Yeah. Um, they didn't come to America to be Chilean. (laughs) So, um, anyway, that, that was humorous and, and it made me laugh because I, I just knew it from. Yeah. You called a shot. (laughs) (laughs) But, but that point being said, 
that is what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. We're dealing with people who have strange hypotheses about the world yeah. and then hit the internet to try to find out who's going to agree with them. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and we, when you have, when you have that mentality being emboldened by the Tommy Lahren's or whatever the fuck her name is and Ben Shapiro's and Candace Owens, who are these, they're, they're just, they're a new rush Limbaugh. And it's just, they're just a, they're just a mouthpiece. It, it gives them, it's just this, this, this false misinformed arrogance that I, I cannot wrap my head around. And it's, it's difficult to believe that they believe everything they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's, that's my biggest problem. Cause I'm just sort of like, can you sleep at night? Like, I don't know. Right. I don't know these people. And, you know, certainly people get deluded. Certainly people believe their own bullshit. That's like a thing that happens. Yeah. Um, And, you know, but there's also a self-awareness that maybe they don't have and maybe they do have. Like, yeah, yeah. Here's a great example of this. Timothy Leary. So Timothy Leary, um, this was in 1990. (sighs) I don't even remember what year this was some point before Texas is the reason. (laughs) So early nineties, um, I bullshit my way into a job (laughs) (laughs) as a publicist for a company called SonicNet. Okay. So SonicNet was one of the first music websites on the internet. It was, um, actually a glorified BBS. Okay. And, I remember, you know, I lied through my resume, like somehow I won, you know, it was like that thing we were talking about, like, uh, just, I had to learn how to be public facing and bullshit, but my rationale was strong. My rationale was if I can convince this publicity veteran that I'm a publicist, that I've done this before and she believes me because I speak the discourse, then I deserve that job because that means that I can sell shit to anybody. Yes. <laughs> and, and so I got this job and I was like, wow, in the end, I only worked there for six months because I just, I quit. Yeah. Um, and I actually quit because Snapcase were in town and wanted to hang out. But, um, <laughs> what a great reason. <laughs> that was literally why I quit. But so, um, one of the projects that I had was Timothy Leary. He was doing a, uh, multimedia spoken word performance piece at this uh, place called thread waxing space. Okay. And they wanted me to, you know, get some publicity for Timothy Leary being in town. And also this was when this was news. Um, Timothy Leary was going to do a web chat. That was news. Oh, okay. So that's how long ago. Yeah. <laughs> That web chats were news. Like it was landmark. <laughs> right. So I somehow actually got ABC News interested. And they were like, yes, like we want to come interview Timothy Leary and film <clears throat> chat and, you know, and talk about this multimedia performance. And I was like, great. So I'm like, I'm good at this job. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, he were, we're going to be on TV. Yeah. I was super psyched. <laughs> and so ABC news came and, um, they shot it. And so, uh, 
that morning, Timothy Leary came to the office and it was the first time I'd ever met him. And so we had lunch together and cause I was his publicist. So just talking and, and, you know, shooting these. And he was like, well, you look pretty young. And I was, <laughs> he's like, are you really familiar with me and my work? You know? And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, and I was, I was. And, uh, and he was like, so you tell me what's, what's your take on me? And I was like, really? You want it's like, yeah. And I was like, I kind of think it's bullshit. <laughs> and, uh, he just started laughing. He was, just, <laughs> he was delighted, actually. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and, uh, and so we just started talking. And I was saying, look, man, I, it's like, I don't really come from a drug subculture. I was like, I'm straight edge. That's what this means. I actually was wearing a Project X t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he was just so cool and so into it. Um you know, probably because he's surrounded by, you know, sycophants and you know, people who just are kissing his ass. And, um, and I remember he just looked at me and he goes, well, he's like, here's the thing. Sometimes uh, you've kind of just got to say what the people expect you to say. And I was like, I get it. You got to make a living. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to pay the bills. You got to pay rent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was basically his version of I'm I'm doing what I can. I'm surviving. <laughs> and I, I wanted to be like, yo, you should see the lies I got to take this job. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he appreciates that even, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's there's uh, so to get back to these other yeah. conservative people. Like Timothy Leary had an extreme self-awareness that not everything he said was really sort of like yeah. what he was burning to he say knew. at that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he knew that he was a countercultural icon. Yeah. And yeah. that he was expected to take certain positions and explore them in different ways. Yes. And he was doing his thing. So, you know, but that self-awareness, does that occur in some of these, you know, political talking heads? Right. It's, it's hard to say. Right. I would love to go out to lunch with Ben Shapiro and have him go, it's all bullshit, man. That's what I, <laughs> yeah, like, I look at. I look at that Candace Owens and I'm like, you're a woman of color. Ain't no fucking way <laughs> that you, your family, your parents, your grandparents, your aunts. and I, There's no fucking way. <laughs> this is just, this is everyone's on board with this and the Owens family. Like I just, I feel like, like you're saying, it, it's that Carney, it's that P.T. Barnum thing. I, I, but there is that sense, and, and, you know, sort of like my dad, right? Like, yeah, you know, do I want to say that my dad was a total self-hating Latino? Yeah. Like, I mean, he kind of was. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. it's, uh, there were definitely times where I was like, dad, you're not white. Like, I said that literally <laughs> to him. Um, and... You know, and even, you know, like that's, that's, that's the thing. Like when you, when you think about race, right. To me, race is, is how you're perceived in the world. Um, because I don't see race as necessarily a biological fact. So I am perceived in the world as a person of color. When I walk out the door, people may not know exactly what I am, but they know I'm not white. And yeah. 
And so what you are as you are perceived and you are treated as you are perceived. And, you know, my dad really wanted to feel like his Americanness trumped everything else. Yeah. That skin color didn't matter. Right. Race doesn't matter. We're Americans. Yeah. And it just doesn't work like that. Nationality is not a matter of perception. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, God, like I was in, when I was in London in March, right? Like I was taking a cab home from O2 and, uh, and I'm talking to the cabbie and I'm talking to him like this, like, right. I don't think I sound mm-hmm. English. See, right. like, maybe I pick up little Britishisms when I'm there, but like, sure. I'm not. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be Mr. Bean or something. Like I was, I was literally just talking like this. And at one point he's like, so what part of London did you grow up in? Cause we were talking about London and we were talking about all the different neighborhoods and how they've been. Yeah. I've been going, I've been going there for I mean, almost three years. So like I've been there a million times and I know all the different neighborhoods and I've seen it change. And I, he just assumed that I grew up there. So nationality Clearly, is not yes. a matter of perception because he was wrong. <laughs> but, you know, and it was sort of like, you know, I, I said this to, uh, you know, my class. We, yeah. we I taught a class called, um, it was called uh, Immigration, Ethnicity, and Literature, something like that. Oh, wow. Um, but we were, you know, we, we discussed a lot of these issues. And, you know, I was talking about, like, biracial people. And I was, I was saying, like, so someone like Barack Obama, when he walks out into the world, is he biracial? Absolutely. Yeah. But when he walks out into the world, he is a black man. Yes. That is how he is perceived. Yes. And that's why it's so offensive when all those people, like, you know, in the beginning, there were a lot of Republicans who were like, well, he's part white. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, that's, but that's not his experience. No. And there's a big no. difference. Yes. So, so Candace Owen, there's a sense there that, you know, I'm not going to uh, pathologize her. I'm not going to diagnose her as self-hating, but the symptoms are there. I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've seen this in other people and right. it definitely, it, it, it fits the bill. Right. Um, and I understand this very deeply because uh, when, you know, as, as a queer person, someone who can hide their queerness, right. which I think is a privilege, by the way, like, sure, I have so much respect and, and love for, you know, queer people who cannot fucking hide their queerness. Like that to me is punk as hell <laughs> because they're just like, I just have to be who I am. That's it. That's it. Yes. There's no other version of me. Yes. This is it. Yep. And I'm, I'm blown away by that. Um, because I think my, I thought my childhood was rough. Um, but you know, it would have been much rougher and I know that, but you know, I also understand something about being a self-hating queer because I was one. Right. So I know what it looks like. I know what it sounds like and I know what it feels like. And I know that like, it's awful. (laughs) And, and so there's, there's actually a sense of almost weird displaced empathy for her. Because oh, I just, sure, sure, yeah. you know, like I, I just want her to yeah. sort of like understand what she's doing. Right. Um, not just to other people, but to herself. Like yeah. some of the things she say, she says are they're self-destructive things to me. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I am, I, I gotta say what to, so we can wrap this up. I've kept you for a long yeah. time. Um, 
I'm really glad this went in the direction it did and didn't just like, you know, I, I could have thrown all of my fanboy questions at you, but I'm really glad that we went and tended <laughs> um, I, I have to, I have to ask before you, before we finish, what is the thing that is still inspiring the creative part of you? Because it's always going to be in you, whether sure. it's music or some medium, what is still sparks creativity in you now? Um, I think that I have, speaking of pathologizing, I will pathologize myself. Okay. I have a pathological need to be understood. Um, I think it comes from a lot of the things that we talked about. Um, it comes from, you know, having a family that essentially disowned me. Yeah. It comes from uh, sort of having that experience as a young queer person closeted. I think it comes from being a person of color who travels through white subcultures quite often, frequently. And I think that I know that when I was young, that was what I used to deal with it, yeah. to, to create myself. Yeah. That's what, that's what creativity is to me. Yeah. I don't see it as I'm making a song. I don't see it as I'm making a book. Um, or whatever it is that I'm making, I see it as I'm making myself. It's, it's a version of myself. And that's why, you know, like I've, you know, I've talked about this on Twitter a little bit where I've said, like, if you love Texas is the reason, congratulations, you like gay music because, (laughs) (laughs) because that's, that's what I was creating musically for myself. Like, obviously Garrett's lyrics are about a girl. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so there's stri- there's straight there's straight music in there too, but you know, but realistically, you know, from my perspective, um, as as a maker of things, yeah. um, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to feel understood, and that seems like a very um, youthful folly. It seems like something that you know teenagers do. Yeah. But it's it's just not something that's ever left me. I still feel grossly um, not misunderstood, but mm-hmm. less understood. Right. And, and and that may be a complete lie. That may be just completely in my head. <laughs> but I it's it is what it is. It's in my head. And every time I make new things, that's what is coming out. Great. That's Perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm telling you, this is, you literally have writ, wrote my favorite song of all time. So, I mean, that, uh, <laughs> that, that will change. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, man, I'm 41. <laughs> um, Long life ahead of you. <laughs> and I, uh, but have you heard greatest day by take that? So we, I am a take that fan as is my wife for the record. That was one thing I my wife. She's like, she's not feeling well. Otherwise she would have joined us. And I, wow. one thing I brought up was like, he's a take that fan. If that's <laughs> <laughs> to me, greatest day by take that is the best song. Like I can't like at your all time. Okay. Like maybe number two to like, I would say, I'd say my, my all-time favorite song is probably George Harrison, Isn't It a Pity? 
Okay. Um, oh my God. I think that's probably <laughs> the one. <laughs> that's that's number one. But Greatest Day is definitely number two. That's I cannot stop listening. I, I was watching last night um, on HBO Max. There was uh, For the Love of Dogs. Yeah. And uh, and so I've seen random episodes of it, but I was like, oh, I'll start from episode one. Sure. And they start playing Greatest Day during an adoption day. And I was just bawling. I, was, I can't, I can't not cry. I went to England to see them play on their 30th anniversary tour. Yeah. And they opened with greatest day. And I just was bawling <laughs> completely just like bawling a hundred percent by myself. I went to the show by myself. I was standing all middle-aged English women around me and they were just like hugging me and just like all in know. it together. <laughs> <laughs> the take that bonds are strong. <laughs> I, I will tell you, it's been less than a month ago. I, uh, back into the left. I list that is, that's my favorite song ever. And it's one of my favorite songs that I've ever written. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, good. So like, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, Number two. Anyway, Number one was Jack with one eye. That, I mean, that's up there for me too. Uh, <laughs> that, the, that riff and in well shit both of them the riff uh but i was listening to back into the left and i've heard this song i mean it count it's my favorite song ever and every time that ending the i will always stick up for you that got me and this was like a month ago and i'm driving <laughs> and i feel like i feel myself like the lump i feel my the tears like you know cause that, that whole thing like i think about my kids and i'm just like <sighs> <laughs> that's awesome i mean look i can't even tell you what a privilege it is to have been a part of anything that means so much to so many people like that and when when we've played shows and you sort of see it face to face, it's just like, you know, it's unreal because I know that like, God, it's like so many people make music yeah, and so few people get to experience that. Right. And so it's like, you know, I knew when, when the band ended, I was like, I don't, you know, I mean, new and original was fun and I loved doing it, but I didn't have any sort of like delusions about it in, in the sense, I, like, I just, I had to treat it as something completely different because even when it was happening, Texas to me, what I loved about it was that we were just a gang. Yes. You know, yeah. like we were, we very early in our existence said to each other, this is the band. Yeah. If any one of us quits bands done, no replacements, yeah. no nothing. This is it. This will always be it. And if yeah. we can't make this work, we just end it. I love that. I, that, and I think that's why, I think that's why Texas is so special because it was, it is a snapshot of the four of you. You posted the other day that a uh, picture of that shirt uh, with, with all of your names on it. And, oh yeah. <laughs> which first thought mine and several other people are like, where the fuck do I get that? But, <laughs> but you have to talk to my friend. <laughs> I love it. Um, but you like you saying that, like, it was that part of that part of your life is it. You guys are ride or die together. And yeah. I think that lives inside that music. I think that's why that record is so fucking special because it, I, I mean, it, it had such an effect on 
the immediacy of how I started looking at music going, oh, fuck. Like, this all, like, something opened up. I'd heard Quicksand. I, I had Quicksand records, you know? I mean, it wasn't... Right. I listened to Fugazi, but you guys tipped something in the other direction entirely. You know what's funny is that we're sort of full circling a little bit because, yeah. you know, we were talking about New York City yeah. at that time earlier yeah. and how we were struggling so much. And that's what Back Into the Left is about. Oh, this yeah. This town was built in the house of hope. And <laughs> that, that whole thing is basically Garrett being like, I don't know if I can fucking stay in this city. Holy yeah. crap, I'm screwed. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, that's what that's that song to me. One of the reasons why I think it's so special and, and visceral on that record is because that was something that we all felt yeah. like there were there were songs on the record that were definitely Garrett sort of expressing, you know, personal things. Yeah. And, you know, and, there, you know, obviously, like as a band, we we sort of tap into the energy of that and and yeah. sort of like become the song. But. But back into the left was something that we all, the four of us, were experiencing. Yes, and and that I will always stick up for you. That that bridge is basically just like that that sort of feet in the sand and just saying like, "We're gonna stick it out. Let's let's survive. We're gonna survive. We'll we'll do it together. We're a gang. Let's do this." Yes, and you know that was um, yeah. You're right. I mean that was special, and I think that that that's a part of that song story that I don't think gets told um, because really like maybe everybody uh, internalizes it to be like, Oh, it's my city. Yeah. But that song's about New York. Oh, and that song's about struggling in New York yeah. and feeling like you're not going to make it. And that was the Texas is the reason experience 1994 to 1997. <laughs> the whole experience was how am I going to pay my rent? This city is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say on behalf of myself and several other people, I'm glad that you are, you, I'm glad you guys made it and figured out ways to pay your rent. <laughs> uh, we, um, almost always. Almost always. <laughs> uh, so uh, before we go, I want to give you a chance. I know we just had, we just, uh, we just interviewed Jonah and I know you are on, his new record, right? Um, yes. So I know you're on that, but where where can people find you if they want to follow you uh, on online? Um, I'm I'm at Norman Brandon everywhere, but TikTok. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, most, I mean, I exist mostly on Twitter and Instagram. That's my career yeah. now. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I'm I have some things that I'm working on that. You know, I think later in the year, I'll be able to talk more about, um, which, I, you know, things I'm excited about. Um, I'm still, yeah, I'm still doing stuff. I actually am kind of working with a very um, celebrated band that I love a lot um, and sort of helping to produce some vocals and sort of do a little co-production. And I'm feeling um, it, I got a little sidetracked. Um, okay. My, my dog passed away and I was basically completely screwed for minutes, several weeks. Understood. So I have to, yeah. I have to figure about getting back into that headspace because it was very exciting. And it's a band I love. So, uh, I'm going to hopefully try to be able to get back into that. Um, and I still, you know, Jonah and I are actually still 
we're still talking about writing and recording some things. So I'm yeah. feeling, you know, I don't know what shape that will be in, but, um, but he and I just, you know, we have that sort of forever relationship. It feels like he, when it he, comes to making songs. Yeah. He said that. <laughs> I <think> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, th- there's, there's definitely something kinetic between the two of you and, he, yeah, he agrees with you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, Oof, that'd be embarrassing. <laughs> I was like, he didn't say that at all, man. I don't know where you. <laughs> wow. He was like, I can't wait till that guy stops calling me with songs. <laughs> well, Norman, I really appreciate you doing this, man. Uh, it's it's Thank been a you. pleasure to have you on, and uh, and uh, yeah, until uh, next week, we'll talk to you guys later. Yeah.